This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. We are addicted, and we're not only destroying our own lives, but the lives of future generations and the life of the planet itself. Fossil fuels are a powerful drug, and every time we use, we make ourselves and the world just a little bit more sick. Whether it's driving for several hours for your summer family vacation, like we're all being encouraged to do now that the virus is supposedly over, and as my family will be doing in only a couple of weeks, or by using any product derived from petrochemicals like single-use plastics that are choking our oceans and sea life globally, like the ones I get when food is delivered despite me explicitly requesting them to not send any plastic wear. We're all users and therefore complicit in the planet's destruction. We must quit fossil fuels if we want a healthy, living, breathing planet that isn't gasping for what might be its final breaths as its respiratory and circulatory system have been disrupted by climate change driven by carbon emissions created by human activity meaning by us if we think of the world as a living physical body we can can reconceive the way in which we are making it sick and how we can still treat its illnesses if not cure them entirely the places where this sickness is most evident are where climate is in crisis already and we'll take a global tour of how the planet works how it's not working and what could be our future if something isn't done and fast when we speak with artist writer, researcher, and activist Christina Conklin, co-author of The Atlas of Disappearing Places, Our Coasts and Oceans in the Climate Crisis, which she wrote with sustainability expert Marina Saros. Christina's work investigates the intersection of natural systems and belief systems, often using the ocean as both sight and metaphor. Her essays, exhibitions, and installations consider our cultural responses to the intersecting ecological and social crises of our time, Christina is currently working with thought leaders and activists around the world to help communicate, create, and create, to help communities create regenerative cultural systems. You can follow Christina on Twitter at Christy Conklin. That's C H R I S T Y Conklin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Jess, what's new about you? Um, I'm the same old. I'm I'm a week away from finishing school, so that's that's cool. Did you uh, get uh, have more uh, boxing lessons this weekend for kids in the neighborhood? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It went it went well. Um, yeah, we did. Um, I mean, we still we got more door knocking to do, but it's it's going well. Sweet. Did you see that we got an email from somebody who wants to get lessons from you? No. I told them that they weren't a little kid, so they weren't allowed to get boxing lessons. <laughs> Are you still in the garage, or have you found a space yet? Oh, we're at a park. No, the garage is too small. So, oh my God! So you were boxing outside this weekend? Yeah, it's. I mean, there's shade, but yeah, it's 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 hot. That's got to be brutal. Did, so did you get caught in the storm? The huge oh, storm? Oh no, no, not on Saturday. We didn't do anything Saturday. I was gonna go. Yeah, I was gonna go knock on doors Saturday, but it started thundering. It was crazy. <laughs> so my weekend, I think, uh, I think pregame for the debauchery that is my annual family summer vacation may have begun this past weekend. Because I joined This Is Hell contributor Jeff Dorchin downstairs at Carrie's Lounge on Saturday. 
for a reading by Jeff of some of his favorite moments of truth. There was a pretty big crowd. I counted at least 50 people. Front, side, and back doors were wide open with fans and AC both blasting during the 45-minute event to try to keep the circulation, air circulation going so nobody would be sharing any variants. Many people took in Jeff's performance from uh, outdoors in the beer garden, and as soon as it was over, most retreated to the beer garden just in time for that huge afternoon thunderstorm that I was just mentioning with Jess that hit and forced everybody back into the bar just to leave entirely because it was such an intense storm and went on for so long. What we hope to do with any of these events, whether it's our upcoming 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show or Jeff's reading this weekend, what we hope to do is to get people connected with others who have similar interests and can meet and just maybe work together to make this planet a better place. And that's what happened Saturday. Derek of Chicago's DSA was asking me about an event he's going to have, a panel on peace, I think, that's going to include past This Is Hell guest sociologist Vijay Prashad. Derek asked if I knew anyone who could speak on the panel about Palestine. I told him I did, but instead he ends up talking to our correspondent in Sao Paulo, uh, who was attending the party with us, Brian Muir, who was also there and decides that Brian should be the other panelist so he can give his perspective on Brazil. So that's not to say that our whole go- goal of the show is to get people to hook up with members of the DSA. As far as I know, they dislike me as much as most every other Chicago political activist does. But if our show can get people together to work toward an alternative, well, that makes me happy. But more importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what are we going to be talking about on this show on our 50th anniversary in 2046? (laughs) What are we going to be talking about on this show on our 50th anniversary in 2046? The person with our favorite answer wins any piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner as we do each week following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell and Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is instead of buying some name brand isotonic carbohydrate electrolyte sports drink, make your own. In an article posted at the website of the British tabloid The Sun, Cure Your Freedom Day Hangover with our cheap sun savers hangover cures. Editor Giselle Wainwright tells her readers, When I have got a sore head, I reach for a bottle of a name brand isotonic carbohydrate electrolyte sports drink, but be savvy to save on it. Avoid the kiosk bottles in a supermarket and go to the soft drinks aisle. A kiosk bottle is one pound in Asda, while a four pack is uh, 250 pounds, uh, just over uh, 62 pence a bottle. Um, for this, For those on an even tighter budget, Make your own isotonic sports drink with uh, 100 milliliters of concentrated orange squash. You have that laying around your house, don't you? Concentrated (laughs) orange squash. That makes sense. Um, 400 milliliters of water, four tablespoons or teaspoons of sugar and a pinch of salt. Easy, cheap. And if you've already got all that at home, you're saving even more. (laughs) Yeah, I got all that at home. (laughs) That makes this week's hangover cure for the second week in a row a cue we found in the British tabloid The Sun, and that is make your own isotonic carbohydrate electrolyte sports drink. (laughs) If they actually give the name of the isotonic carbohydrate electrolyte sports drink, but we're not getting paid and I do not give out free advertising and we don't advertise. 
putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is Hal, and you can help with our horrible business model by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell if you are a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon. This past Friday, you heard us continue our conversation on Haiti when we went back to January 2010, right after an earthquake had just shook Haiti hard. Instead of helping the people of Haiti later that year, the West engaged in what Haiti Action Committee's Seth Donnelly called an electoral coup d'etat on last week's show. So we went back 11 years and found our talk with Peter Halward, professor of modern European philosophy at Middlesex University and author of 2008's Damning the Flood, Haiti, Aristide, and the Politics of Containment. Peter Peter had just uh, written the Guardian opinion piece, Our Role in Haiti's Plight, if we are serious about assisting this devastated land, we must stop trying to control and exploit it. And apparently we, whoever Peter thought we were, We're clearly not serious about helping the people of Haiti because all that's happened since we talked to Peter is the continuation of imposing strategies that exploit and control Haitians. Also on Patreon last week and continuing into this week, as we are marking our 25th year of being on air at WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment, I offered a brief history of This Is Hell to the best of my abilities because it's all based on my very foggy, incredibly hazy memory. This week, I kind of remembered how I revealed author and sociologist Vijay Prashad, same guy we were mentioning earlier, uh, his secret favorite halal butcher shop. I recalled the only profanity uttered on air we ever got in trouble for saying and how it wasn't one of the seven dirty words and the way I made it certain we did not get in any trouble. I mentioned another dirty word I said repeatedly on air during one show, but nobody ever complained. And there's the time when a contributor to the show wrote a completely fictional article, but it was picked up as fact by Ann Landers. And that contributor has gone on to become a New York Times best-selling author completely unbeknownst to me. We'll continue that brief history of This Is Hell this Friday, so sign up at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'll do my best to accurately recount when we were threatened by a Chicago alderman, when an activist group would only do the show if we gave them an hour of our airtime permanently, the touchy subject we were told never to discuss by an activist who worked on the very cause they were telling us not to discuss, the time we accidentally let thieves into the station, and the other time we let someone in who cut the station's power And what really happened, if I can remember, with that NPR talent contest where I was a finalist. But you can only hear that and another classic interview pulled from our 25-year archive of shows by subscribing to patreon.com slash thisishell. And it's cheap, 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 damn cheap. Speaking of uh, celebrating 25 years on WNUR, we will be hosting our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show, This Is Art All Day, Saturday, September 18th, featuring live music and art opening and a raffle of This Is How related or inspired prizes. If you are a musician or would like to suggest a musical act you would like to see perform, or you're an artist or would like to recommend an artist for the art opening, email us at chuckatthisishell.com and maybe you or your suggestion will be performing music or displaying their art. That's the 25th anniversary This Is How Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show. This is art happening on Saturday, September 18th. Send your suggestions for musical acts to perform or artists to show their work ASAP to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Yes, our actual anniversary of airing on WNUR was last week, but we had to reschedule the party due to the ongoing pandemic, so it's now happening again. Saturday, 
September 18th, all day, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Coming up, the planet is dying from our addiction. We'll also have This Week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question, Mel, which is what are we going to be talking about on the show on our 50th anniversary in 2046? We got an email from a listener who wants to work on the show that I want to share, and we'll tell you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. The world is sick, and it keeps getting worse. Its oceans and shorelines are being threatened by the worst side effects of the disease that us humans have caused that now infects our entire planet. In every part of the planetary ecosystem, the Earth's body, if you will, there are signs of the infection that now seems to be metastasizing at nearly uncontrollable rates. And our time to do something about it is quickly running out. Here to give us a better understanding of how the planet lives and breathes in our ongoing impact on its physical well-being. Artist, writer, researcher, and activist Christina Conklin is co-author of The Atlas of Disappearing Places, Our Coasts and Oceans in the Climate Crisis, which she wrote with sustainability expert Marina Saros. Welcome to This Is Hell, Christina. Thanks so much for having me. The first thing I want you to do, and I know this is probably bad for radio, but can you describe art to us? Tell us the the way in which you uh, created these maps, the medium that you did it on and how you did it. Sure. Um, it, it was part of the research for this trip. I got to go to the Arctic on a, an art residency on a tall ship. So imagine sailing amidst glaciers uh, with 30 other artists getting out onto the ice every day with guides who were protecting us from polar bears with, with shotguns. So when I was on the shoreline in Svalbard, um, I found seaweed and I really didn't expect to. I'd been fascinated by this stuff because I live uh, right at the coast in California. Uh, but I started collecting it and drawing it and then I started painting on it and I started transcribing maps onto it and uh, just became really curious about this, you know, substance that uh, was the product of the ocean and, and how could I illustrate what's going on in the ocean with it. And it's this uh, translucent, when you, when you dry it, it becomes very brittle like paper. Um, when water touches it, it dissolves in your hands. So it's, um, it's tricky to work with, um, but I, I wanted to make that the, the medium for the, the book. And, um, and I just, you know, like I said, transcribed actual research scientists' maps onto the seaweed as a way to, you know, basically get their message out rather than, you know, uh, my, my message is in the words, their message is in the pictures. Well, they're absolutely, absolutely stunning. You write that we must confront our problematic behaviors that are the root cause of climate change. We show how our dependence on fossil fuels is changing the biology and even the basic chemistry of the ocean in the same way that substances, substance abuse changes the biology and chemistry of the user. We are abusing chemicals, which are in turn flowing to the sea and ruining coastal ecosystems and drinking water supplies. So. Are we addicted to the chemicals we abuse that are contributing to climate change and changing the chemistry of the oceans? And if we are addicted, is the problem we don't know how to end our addiction to, or survive without the chemicals we believe we desperately need? Do we need the chemicals that we are destroying the oceans with to survive? Yeah, it's it, this is really tricky. We, we're all sort of caught in this very sick system right now. Um, and and 
Yeah, at the moment, if, if the definition definition of an addiction is that you can't not use in a given day, um, yeah, we're all we're all hooked. Um, and, and and a lot of us don't want to be, and we're we're trying to make changes. I think um, people are buying, you know, buying electric cars, putting solar on their houses, trying to not have that plastic fork in their takeaway food. Um, so so part of it is this this system, this this kind of Uber system that we're we feel a little bit stuck in. Um, some of that we can change with our own choices. Some of that we can't. It's going to take bigger things like uh, legislation and regulation and, and a bigger cultural shift in our understanding of um, our relationship with the environment. I mean, if we all uh, understood that we're part of a natural system and not separate from it, I think we wouldn't poison ourselves quite so much. And that's the point where you get to thinking about the uh, world as a physical body, as a, you know, just a living, breathing body. How do you believe we understand climate change differently when we view it as a disease to the planetary body? And in doing so, do you believe people can pull together more when it comes to addressing climate change? Right. Well, if we if we understand systems thinking, which, you know, I didn't wasn't exposed to a lot in college or or anywhere else for that matter, until I started really thinking and looking into it. Um, it what it, it understands is that we are all um, complex systems, right? We have a microbiome, the ocean has a microbiome. Without all of these um, bacteria and uh, fungi and things, we, we don't function, right? So we are dependent on them, they are dependent on us. Symbiosis is a, is a real thing. Um, all these systems relate to each other and the relationship between the systems is, is critical. Um, so when we start to really understand how systems work and then the earth being the biggest system of all, uh, I wanted to study the ocean, which felt like a pretty big system to me, but really, you know, it's just, again, one piece. Um, when we start to get that and we really get how interconnected everything is, Again, I think the motivation for killing ourselves hopefully will will decrease. Uh, hopefully, uh, you also write that every action in the ocean triggers a chemical reaction that cascades through its systems, and most of the sea's currents, cri- current crises hail directly from human pollution. A century of added plastics, petrochemicals, and excess carbon dioxide has fundamentally altered the eons-old chemical composition of the ocean. So is it possible to return to the eons-old chemical composition, or has this damage been done and there's no return to the eons-old normal? Well, the the tragedy that I learned about in the ocean is really that some of the um, changes we've unleashed in the, with our fossil fuel use over the past couple of centuries really has unleashed these um, deep pervasive changes in the ocean's body that cannot be changed back uh, in any time scale that you know makes sense to us. Um, that you know the ocean is now 26% more acidic in its surface waters than it was even just 50 years ago. And of course, we're increasing our fossil fuel consumption all the time still. And you know, we need to be driving it down to a fossil-free economy, not a not a net zero economy. That's that's just sort of some weird um, political idea of a of a of a safe zone that isn't because we're just sort of only emitting as much as we're sequestering. But that doesn't solve anything. Um, so the ocean's 2% warmer than it was 50 years ago. And that's all of these lines keep going up and to the right. 
uh, forever until we uh, drive carbon emission levels back down to pre-industrial levels. How disingenuous do you think net zero is? Because we hear that term all of the time. We hear from politicians all the time, and then it doesn't seem to be questioned in any way by the media. And they talk as if net zero is a great goal to achieve. So how disingenuous do you think net zero is? Well, it, uh, I, I, optimistically, you can say it's a starting point, but, um, but and, and I actually talked about it in the book. I think I I bought that line a little bit when I was writing the book a few years ago, and now I've done a little more homework. So we all live and learn, and I'm going to give all of the journalists uh, uh, the chance to do the same. Um, but but really, it's it's not going to be uh, good enough or fast enough. And um, the clients, climate scientists are, are very clear on the speed with which we need to uh, drive down fossil fuel use to, to zero or near zero. Um, you know, if you if it's near zero, then you can have sequestration uh, technologies and, and and policies that can start pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere and get us back into a safe zone for life. Um, but we are not heading in that direction right now. And so net zero is um, something. It's sort of a little bit like the what the tobacco industry did, you know, back in the day when it was sort of like, oh, you know, maybe smoking isn't good for you, but let's do some more research and, you know, kick the can a few more decades. But we don't have time for that anymore. If we stop dumping of all plastics, all petrochemical derived plastics into the oceans, if we stop that today, what would still be the ongoing problem with the oceans and the plastics that are already dumped in it? Yeah, well, that's actually a, a nice idea, a long way from happening. Most of the, um, I think, gosh, it was something like 75% of the plastics in the Pacific Gyre, which we write about in the book, um, come from Asia and because they have poor waste management strategies. And so, so that's not going to happen anytime soon. But we do imagine in every chapter in the book, we, we write a speculative uh, piece from the viewpoint of 2050. And in the plastics chapter, we, I imagine, I hope that um, China leads the way in developing a technology that will capture all of that waste as it's flowing out all of Asia's major rivers um, and, 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 you know, therefore save, save the Pacific gyre. Um, the problem is plastics <clears throat> break down into microplastics and then into nanoplastics. They really never go away. And they can get into the food supply, um, you know, beyond just the the macroplastics that animals choke on, and uh, you know that that are they 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 say there will be a pound of plastic for every pound of fish um, by 2050 in the ocean, which is just hard to even conceive. Anyway, it 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 is a in a way a forever problem. Um, there are, you know, some, some technologies that can help around the edges, but really we just need to stop making and using plastic. Um, it's just another product of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, I, I learned about how it's made and it's really just when, when they, um, do the refining of, of gasoline and diesel and all of that, uh, the, the, the byproduct is the, is the base stock for plastics. And when you realize how how tied these industries are to each other, the research is that the plastics industry plans to make up for all of the savings of us driving electric cars by increasing our use in plastic. And that made me so angry 
um, that, you know, I, I, you know, I wanted to just alert everybody to that because there's, there's, there are plans out there to keep us addicted. Yeah, there definitely are. And uh, I was at a department store last night and I, it, just because of doing the research for this interview, I couldn't believe the amount of plastic, the amount of plastic used to make a pack of gum. I couldn't imagine, I couldn't believe how much plastic is unnecessarily being created. And then I was throwing out a to-go container. And on the bottom of the to-go container, it said uh, recycling with the number eight inside. And as we learned from Sharon Lerner of The Intercept a couple of years ago, anything that's over number two or three, we really have no idea of what's in that uh packaging. So it's really disturbing when there's a number eight. I've never seen that high of a number before in my life. You point out everything, everything, all plastic is garbage, except for a one and a two. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's all going to landfill. Even in the U.S., we only recycle only 9% of plastic is recycled in the U.S. So really, it's about not using the stuff in the first place. Right. And uh, it, that's really difficult to do. You write, since the ocean is slow to absorb our skyrocketing rates of atmospheric carbon, the pace of acidification and warming lags behind our emissions by 25 to 30 years at the surface and longer in the deep sea. This lag allows us a false sense of confidence regarding the manageability of global heating. But our current and historical pollution will continue to catch up with us for decades, even after we have reduced global carbon emissions. Does that lag lead to a lack of awareness of just how dire the situation is. Is this a driving reason that we have climate change denialism? Well, I, I think you're right. Um, I This was one of the, the most sort of um, sobering things I learned in my research is that um, because the OSHA, this, this global system, this earth system, takes a long time to metabolize the junk we're putting into it. And so, um, you know, if you think about the scale of the ocean, so um, we, you know, we're really basically dealing with 1980s levels of carbon emissions that have been absorbed, fully absorbed into the ocean at the moment. So, you know, yeah, it, that's part of why it, the story is just going to get harder and harder um, unless we change the, you know, turn down the dial on carbon. As you were pointing out earlier, you know, we have this addiction to fossil fuels. So is our addiction to fossil fuels like the addiction to any drug? And that is, it makes us feel good and we do not want to stop. Can we approach our problem with fossil fuel as a drug rehab center would? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, from 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 what I know uh, about addiction science, which is something I studied actually at col in college, um, y you know, one of the first things you got to do is be really honest, and that's actually one of the hardest things to do is that is that first step of deciding that there's a problem, and um, no longer turning away or um, or or using your you know kind of convenient your habits of of denial and and escape. Um, and then, and then finding a community and, and finding support, right? People, people who can, can, and be with you on that journey, um, because you can't do these things alone. So, um, so that, those are two of the things I would say that people can really do in our own lives and communities, um, is to have these hard conversations and to, you know, kind of own up to our own role and also then demand the accountability of the of our of our politicians and um, of businesses and and legislation. Um, you know, we we can really 
come together, I think, and be advocates in the same way that if you've been through an AA program or something, you're, you're really required to reach back and help somebody else because that, that is part of the recovery. You also point out that our reliance on oil and gas, plastic containers, synthetic fertilizers, microfibers, and the other trappings of modern convenience culture are getting us in trouble, and the devastating side effects will only begin to heal uh, after we've stopped using. It's convenient to destroy the planet. How inconvenient must life get to address climate change and all of its effects? Is the biggest challenge for people who want to fight climate change, like yourself, is the biggest challenge the threat of inconvenience? Yeah, it really it's it is tricky because it, uh, we've we've gotten so used to this disposable lifestyle. But I think my my hope is um, that you know we used to know how to to build stuff and to fix stuff, and we didn't used to wrap everything in three layers of plastic at the grocery store. Um, so some of this is just undoing stupid things. Um, and and some of it's going to take more of an awakening. I really do feel like it's there's this kind of deeper cultural move we need to make to understand that we are part of the natural system, the system is sick, and that to get well, we need to all um, be a part of that health building uh, mechanism. And that and 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 the other thing about systems um, and bodies is that they're beautifully like. Um, health creating, when, when you give them the opportunity, when you give nature a chance, as we saw in the pandemic, when you just give it a little bit of a break, it, it is remarkable the amount of healing that can happen. And so if we become a, that force for good, um, it, there's just really, uh, I, I have tremendous hope. There are wonderful um, resources on um, biological, like biomimicry is a, is a whole system of thinking um, that understands, looking at natural systems um, and what, how, what they can teach us. Because we've spent a lot of time ignoring nature and kind of trying to dominate and control nature. But actually nature has a lot of knowledge built in from you know eons of evolution that we could be learning a lot from right now. You make this really interesting point. You write that one working theory in addiction science is that people with substance abuse uh, issues stop maturing once they start abusing. They become frozen at the emotional age that they began buff uh, buffering and stop, or began suffering and stopped uh, learning. By this model, most of the industrialized world is stuck in the mid-20th century when post-World War II capitalism boomed, along with populations proliferating cars and chemicals, pollutants and pesticides. It's time we grow up and join the 21st century. But it's arguable that in that post-World War II era, we simply did not know that what we were doing was causing climate change, that we were just in denial. Uh, if we even understood that, we were in denial of it. So to what extent do you think we want to return to that consumption pattern of the post-World War II era because we want to return to that era when we did not know that our actions had consequences? Well, it would be nice not to know things sometimes, right? I mean, <laughs> going, going back to being a toddler would, would sometimes be great, but that's not what being, you know, grownups is all about. Um, and uh, which I have to impress upon my teenagers sometimes. Um, and uh, so being humans, we, you know, with our large brains and uh, all our technology and sophistication, I, like this is it. We, we just need to, um, put our big pants on and 
and and face this and and you know the fact that we didn't know i had a funny i have a funny book called oops environmental ethics um or something like that because it's like yeah we did like we didn't know okay so that's fine but here we are and now we know so so let's uh use what we know and our um our most mature awake aware selves and do the the difficult things that are need to be done right now for our our grandchildren and uh, future generations all over the world because you know, around the world, hundreds of millions of people are already suffering right now. Uh, one of our chapters is about food security in, uh, in Vietnam. And, you know, the subsistence farmers there, as sea levels even rise just a little bit and flood their, their, their rice paddies, um, their, their food, um, their rice production has gone down by half in recent years. Now, that's not, you know, it's not right. It's not fair. You also mentioned how blaming and shaming is not effective in fighting climate change. How can we have accountability without blaming and shaming? I think I think we, we're talking about that as like that that kind of individual blaming and shaming of ourselves that feels like paralysis, right? Exactly. Um, that's that's where that's where addicts get stuck in their addiction because they can't let go of of the, all of that. Um, so I think we certainly. Um, need to sort of see that we're in this complicated, difficult system right now. I call it the both and like we're, you know, we're stuck. I have a computer that has, um, you know, all of these different um, rare earth minerals in it. And I don't want those to be mined, but, but, but yet here I have a computer. And, and as you were saying in the intro, like these are difficult choices we're all faced with every day as we um, are in the middle of also working for a changed system. So we have to give ourselves enough space to operate to, to change the system. And we need to hold power accountable um, because there's far too much money and power in, uh, in the vested interests of keeping things just the way they are. I never really thought about how consumer activism can be classist, but you write how it will take time and a lasting commitment to equitable solutions because it is neither feasible nor fair to immediately eliminate all nitrogen-based fertilizers, tarps, plastic jugs, and oil cook stoves from the daily lives of billions of people. Joint action by the global community of regulators, businesses, and citizens has to happen in order to solve the problem. It will be hard, but not impossible. How often are consumer campaigns more harmful to the most vulnerable and marginalized? Are, are those who are most vulnerable to climate change also the most vulnerable to the impacts of uh, fighting climate change? Are the poorest and most marginalized, especially women and people of color, also the ones being asked to sacrifice the most because they're dependent on products that contribute to climate change the most because they do not have access or can't afford green alternatives? Well, that's a very interesting point. I mean, it, it, it's, um, you know, I, I guess my hope would be that we can develop, you know, instead of the oil cook stoves that we'll get solar cook stoves out to folks and, and, and that the, 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 I know that the agenda of, um, development organizations and aid organizations is, is to, you know, protect these most vulnerable people, but really, it is a critical issue. Um, one of the chapters I wrote about uh, climate migration, uh, I focused on um, the, the Rohingya in, in Myanmar, which people have seen as you know, kind of an ethnic cleansing story, and it largely is. But uh, climate change is, is a threat multiplier in, um, in all parts of the world where people are vulnerable. 
And so the fact that in Burma and Myanmar, they've had more frequent storms um, in recent years, you know, it's pitting poor farmers against each other and, and escalating these, um, these ethnic uh, difficulties and challenges in, in ways. And then of course the government comes in and, and um, magnifies uh, into, into violence. So, you know, they, they predict uh, there will be, I think 250 million uh, climate migrants in, the, in, the, in this next few decades which is that, you know, tides and tides of people who are, who are so desperate because they can no longer live where they, they live. Um, this is something we need to prioritize. And you also write that one universal challenge is that political borders do not always overlap tidally with community or ecosystem boundaries, school districts, police precincts, road and transit authorities, city planning agencies, and state and national regulators each have their own sets of programs, funding, and staff, which has been allocated to serve the needs of a geographically bounded group of constituents. But disasters strike across these lines, and our response requires pooling resources and coordinating deeply between bureaucracies that were not set up to be pooled or coordinated and often have explicit rules against working together. Addressing climate change disasters will require sustained cross-boundary collaboration over years, decades, and generations. So is climate change a, a threat to borders of all kinds, whether there are jurisdictions within communities, city or state or provincial boundaries, even national borders? Can and will borders survive climate change or must they go to have any effective fight against climate change? Well, I think part of my hope uh, and and hopefully others is that some borders will change. Um, you know, a lot of borders were, were drawn quite randomly by um, English men in suits in, in the 19th century, post various wars and, um, and yeah, that, you know, Colonialism and the legacy of that needs to be part, uh, how we address climate change and how we address colonialism uh, need to go hand in hand. And for example, in the, um, well, two, two chapters, uh, one in the Arctic, I imagine in the year 2050 that, um, that the Inuit uh, whose environment is, is being devastated by melting permafrost and melting ice, um, that over the course of the next few decades, they basically negotiate independence. Um, and they do that because the, the, the Canadian government no longer uh, sees the value in, in drilling in the Arctic, uh, which is why they're holding on so tight right now, um, but because we've transitioned to a clean energy economy that no longer is reliant on that oil and we leave it in the ground. Um, so that's one, one idea. Um, another is in the Cook Islands, which is in the South Pacific, a tiny little island nation of 15,000 people that has just, you know, a really beautiful uh, history and belief system, traditional lifestyle of fishing on the reefs and this amazing uh, marine resource that they that they created a law uh, to make it a marine protected area. And then uh, international mining interests have come in and convinced uh, a few key political players in this tiny country to allow them to do deep seabed mining, which is scraping manganese nodules off the bottom of the sea and destroying everything in its path, um, which puts their, you know, their marine resources and their environment and, um, and, and their entire culture really at risk. 
So there are these really complicated political things that are going to be playing out in the coming decades. And my hope uh, is that because indigenous activists are becoming so much more um, uh, you know, vocal and um, people are listening more, um, that there will be, uh, and, and in my chapter about the Cook Islands, there is a lawsuit um, that protects the rights of nature and that protects their own, um, you know, way of life and, and, and knowledge that, um, that can be, that can provide guidance for the rest of us, really. You, when we were talking earlier about uh, post-World War II consumption patterns that we seemingly do not want to get rid of, you also mentioned uh, infrastructure, and that's a big discussion right now on Capitol Hill. Can urban design rooted in the post-World War II framework of urban design and consumer habits be sustained as climate change continues to affect life on this planet? Can we have cities as we know them today, or must they change dramatically? Well, I hope they would tra- change dramatically because right now, to me, they're, they, they can be very sterile, cementy, you know, um, alienating places. Um, I like to imagine cities that, um, you know, have, have better design, more green space, um, you know, sort of d- dense um, uh, housing, but then, you know, leaving more open space and waterfront. Uh, for natural um, systems to to thrive that we could then, you know, be in in closer relationship with, we could have more urban farms. Um, You know, I think there's a huge amount of interesting potential in urban design and a lot of um, uh, regenerative urban designers are really looking at these issues. There's also the materials issue, like concrete is one of the worst polluters in the world right now, but there are new kinds of concrete being developed that that actually sequester carbon rather than um, expel carbon. So, I mean, I think I think that's an amazing opportunity rather than anything else is to stop thinking that we need to, you know, build a wall and hold the shoreline of New York or or wherever it might be, um, and really think creatively. Okay, what? Let's invest now into what's coming next. And um, and just and and build a, a cities on higher ground and with um, this more integrated ecological approach to civilization. There's this term ecological civilization that a lot of people are a lot of scholars are are investigating right now and, and writing about. Um, it's really worth it's really worth looking at. Ecological civilization. I'm writing it down as you speak. You write that uh, many of us don't like thinking about trauma in advance because it promises lost pain and disorientation, but opening ourselves to the nature of impermanence and vulnerability can be a real asset as we consider how to live in and through the climate crisis, which will be punctuated by flood, fire, and famine as both individuals and societies. How we prepare for trauma emotionally, socially, and financially will have everything to do with how successful we are. And again, I can understand then why people would want to be into some kind of denialism because facing up to that vulnerability is a very difficult thing. Emotionally, psychologically, how healthy is it for us to anticipate and expect the very worst when it comes to climate change. Is it necessary for us to realize our vulnerability to not be so vulnerable? And is that preparedness or is that paranoia? Well, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I, I think um, I, I, I really think it's important that we slow down and get real. 
Um, and, and that we've had this, you know, too long, uh, uh, a run of the, over the past, you know, number of decades of, uh, 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 speeding up and keeping busy and kind of distracting ourselves and, you know, la, 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 la. Um, but, but that what's going to, what it's going to take to, to come through this next difficult period, um, I call it threading the needle of the climate crisis. It, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a huge, uh, hole that we have to, to get through as, as a people. Um, what it's going to take is this kind of community-based, um, soul-searching, uh, a, a approach that, you know, means like, you know, as we were saying, not, um, not, not running away from in, into our, you know, convenience, uh, lifestyle anymore and, and getting real. Um, I think there's a huge potential in that. And, and, and it can start with, you know, starting a local book club or, um, some, you know, a, a walking group where you actually talk about some of these difficult issues. I mean, grief is part of every life, right? I mean, we're, none of us get out of this life. So part of this is our cultural avoidance of, of impermanence, of death, of, of difficulties. And that's, that's really a strangely, uniquely um, Western and particularly American way of, of being um, that we, we can all just individually decide not to do that anymore. But we're being told, as you know, we're now being told by government officials, by politicians, by the media, they're telling us all the goal is to get back to normal. You write recovering from injury doesn't mean going back to the way things were because trauma and healing inevitably change the trajectory of our bodies, minds, and spirits. Trauma specialists study post-traumatic stress disorder when the past haunts the present and future, as well as post-traumatic growth when difficult events propel a person toward greater insight and strength for the future. So to what extent can and will the pandemic teach us that there is no future in going back to normal? Right. There, there's no going back. I mean, there's never back. Like, that's that's crazy. Like, we're always moving forward, right? So, and we're always, if we think about our own lives, we're always incorporating what happens to us and moving forward. Some people get stuck, I suppose, um, in, in, a, in a traumatic event. But, but there's also the possibility, of course, of taking difficult things in our lives and forging. I think of it as forging. Like imagine like the, you know, they're like the fires of a, of a metal forge. Like we, we get beat down sometimes. Um, difficult things happen in our lives, but, but we, we, we can take that with others, with support and, um, and turn that into something really strong. And that is, uh, again, my, my hope for how we address um, the challenges that are coming. There will be more climate disasters, more storms, more, more floods, um, more heat waves. Um, and, and that's all going to be really, really hard. I, and I hope it just brings us together rather than, than pushes us apart. And again, I think that boils down to our individual decisions on how we decide to, to relate to ourselves and our neighbors. Um, if we can, you know, kind of be open to, to that impermanence and like that, that vulnerability. It's hard. Um, but as, as we say in the book, not impossible. 
you point out that researchers think that warming may also contribute to increased ocean stratification, a situation in which the layers of ocean mix less efficiently. You were just talking about how we have to thread the needle and how right now is a very important time. And you write that as warmer air and water melt polar ice at a faster rate, this creates a less salty and therefore lighter surface layer, which doesn't sink as easily. If this surface layer doesn't sink, the entire oceanic conveyor belt could slow or possibly stop. So people understand that this moment in time is important. What would happen if the oceanic conveyor belt stopped? Right. Well, uh, that is one of many uh, ocean climate impacts that we don't fully understand and can't fully predict. And that's why it's so important that we act now. If the oceanic conveyor belt stops, um, the, the warm air that gets drawn up from the tropics into northern North America and northern Europe um, stops. Uh, and, and so the, the impacts in the ocean in terms of currents are you know, manifold, but, but what happens on land is that it gets very, very cold. Um, so all of that moderate, um, uh, the moderate temperatures of, of northern Europe and, and, and North America um, get get very cold, and that affects our agriculture. It affects it affects everything. Um, we've had many versions of this in the past um, that really had a big impact uh, in the in the Middle Ages in Europe. Um, just a, 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 a sliver of this amount of change. So we don't want to mess with that, really. And the and the whole point um, is is that there are these feedback loops that uh, if if we continue to pump carbon into the atmosphere, the feedback loops actually take on a life of their own. They have to, it's the laws of physics. And so um, they can create runaway change. If we don't change soon enough, they will take over. And uh, we don't know where those tipping points are and we are dangerously close to some of them according to climate scientists. And you point out that in the ocean, positive feedback loops are are nearing a state in which ice must melt ever faster. Corals cannot avoid bleaching and dying and dead zones have to get larger, all due to global warming. Truly, our ocean is headed toward critical condition. Do you know how near or how soon it will be in that critical condition? And what happens when it does get to that critical condition? Is it too late? Well, for some systems, it is likely too late, uh, and that is really heartbreaking. Um, coral, they, they expect that most coral will have died because of global warming um, in, in the next 30 or so years. Um, coral is this site of huge biodiversity. You know, scientists are working to breed um, heat-tolerant corals, but if we keep turning the temperature up, you can't outpace evolution you know, artificially forever. Um, and, and so, yeah, the natural system of the ocean is, is really in crisis. So, and of course the ocean produce the, the, the phytoplankton in the ocean produce half of all the oxygen on earth. Um, that's something we should be, we should be aware of, um, as much as we're aware of the Amazon. And, you know, there's a, the chapter I wrote about the Arabian sea is about something called regime shift, which is. What happens when um, one, this um, ecosystem is, is dominated by one kind of um, phytoplankton that's the basis of the whole food chain? And, and in just 10 years, it switched completely to being dominated by an entirely different 
phytoplankton, which may seem in, insignificant, but the, the, the changes that roll through the entire system is now means that whales are starving um, because of the effects on the food web. So these things have, have huge, huge cascading impacts, I think is, is one of the things um, that I learned about system science is, is these impacts cascade through the system in ways that we just don't understand. Our, our, we, we know, I think we've only named 9% of the organisms in the ocean so far. We have a lot to learn. You also point out humans keep blowing through previous greenhouse gas emission targets, and the planet keeps blowing through heat records, even during the early 2020 societal shutdowns from COVID-19, when travel stopped, factories went offline, and economies ground to a halt. (laughs) Greenhouse gas emissions weren't reduced to the level necessary to limit warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. The shutdowns did wonders for air and water pollution and demonstrated how resilient our planet is. But air pollution is not the same as carbon pollution. CO2 is invisible. And people staying home for a few weeks is not the same as restructuring energy supply to drastically reduce fossil fuel consumption. So why is consuming less not enough. If we all worked from home a couple of days a week, took mass transit, rode a bike to work when we went to work, why isn't that enough? Well, we haven't had this much carbon in the atmosphere. We're at 422 parts per million right now um, for three to four million years, right? So that, that tells you that we are a geological force and that nibbling around the edges isn't isn't going to be good enough. Um, what we need to do is change our entire energy economy, as you mentioned, and uh, drive the carbon levels back down to the pre-industrial level, which uh, which was the, in the 200, 280 to 300 parts per million range. That's the safe operating space for, for life on Earth as we know it. Now, there are... Um, Certain, there are a few kind of technologies, uh, carbon sequestration technologies people are talking about, but mostly they don't exist yet. So this idea, again, this net zero idea that we can sequester as much as we emit uh, is is just not feasible. It's not true. Um, There isn't enough land to plant trees on to make up all of that difference. Um, And uh, there's some there are some good articles out there that people should look up about um, the, the, the sort of the, the lie of net zero um, to really understand what, um, as we were saying earlier, what politicians are trying to sell us. Um, but yeah, it, 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 when, when carbon levels were last this high, seas were 50 to 80 feet higher. So um, the, the long-term effects of the amount of carbon we're putting into the atmosphere are going to you know, cause sea level rise for hundreds of years to come. Um, and these cascading changes in the natural systems of the ocean, um, some of which you know, are, are on very dangerous trajectories right now. And the only way to um, slow uh, their progression is to address our addiction to fossil fuels. 
Let's talk about that political leadership just for a moment. You write that even when leadership lags, all our actions matter. Some researchers who have studied societal shifts have concluded that only a small minority of people need to commit to making change for a paradigm shift to take root. This is very good news. According to a recent poll, more than a third of Americans think climate change is indeed a crisis that will require sacrifices. So if that is the case, how important is it then to focus energy on climate change deniers and trying to get them to believe in climate change? Do they all need to accept the reality of climate change, or is that a distraction and wasted energy for those who do want to confront climate change? Yeah, I I think uh, paradigm shifts happen, um, you know, sort of big shifts in how societies understand themselves. They happen um, not very often, but when when I've looked at the past paradigm shifts, it, you never bring everybody along. Um, you're going to, it's, it, it really is a minority of people who can sway a, a kind of a, 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 a bigger ideological shift in society. And, um, and I think we just need to not scream at each other so often and just get on with the work of, um, of, of building these regenerative, resilient, economies and communities. And, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm not interested actually in engaging with, with climate deniers. I, uh, I would rather um, spend my energy having conversations that talk about this new understanding of the interconnected system that we're all a part of and bring people along to see that if we all do, um, do our part in our communities, to, to build this kind of better, healthier paradigm for how, um, you know, we can operate that other folks will get swept along with that. It, we don't need everybody on, on board in order to, to build this new world. And you point out that in addition to learning to be resilient, recovering from traumatic events or making incremental changes, we must find ways to become transilient. That is to make the radical shifts required for future generations to survive and thrive. Transilient action takes imaginative leaps. What are the kinds of imaginative leaps that transilience can bring about when it comes to climate change? Well, for me, transilience, it's a, it's a nice compliment to the word resilience, which a lot of people use, and, and that kind of connotes bouncing back. But transilience is about making some imaginative leaps forward. So um, taking all the money that we currently subsidize fossil fuels with, and let's take all that money and subsidize um, regenerative agriculture and marine permaculture and some of the technologies for, for carbon sequestration that are going to save the planet. Um, so that's like taking a big leap forward um, or developing economies can leap from their, you know, just don't even build that carbon. I mean, that, that, that coal fired power plant, let's go straight to solar arrays and, and therefore sort of jump over this whole um, bad paradigm that you, you know, you, you might've chosen and go straight to the health building um, transilient paradigm for the future. That's interesting because uh, that avoids the idea of transition fuels and goes right to transilience, going, uh, skipping transition and going to transilience. That's really interesting. One last question for you. We have been speaking with artist, writer, researcher, and activist Christina Conklin, co-author of The Atlas of Disappearing Places, Our Coasts and Oceans in the Climate Crisis, which you wrote with sustainability expert Marina Saros. One last question for you. 
uh, Christina, and it's what we call, we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is always the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or the audience is going to hate your response. You write, doctors refer to storms that sweep through human bodies, from a storm of cholera surging through a community to a depressive storm that rages beyond the control of the sufferer. Traumatic events change us just as hurricanes and cyclones change cityscapes and coastal habitats. But recovery is possible, especially for those who have worked on their resilience in advance. The way to most fully heal from both personal and societal trauma is to identify the root causes, address them, and then move forward, scars and all. So according to Science Feedback, a network of scientists that analyzes science's Uh, as it's reported in the media, preliminary data show a 5.6% increase in the overall suicide rate in the U.S. in 2020. I'm sorry, that's a decrease, a 5.6% decrease in the overall suicide rate in the U.S. in 2020 during the pandemic, although the trend over the past 20 years showed a steady increase. This could be due to a transient effect detected after previous natural catastrophes, known as the pulling together phenomenon. It is important to note that the long-term impact of the pandemic on the suicide rate may only manifest later down the road. The actual suicide rates for 2020 remain unknown due to a lack of data. Meanwhile, suicide rates in children in the U.S. were already at record highs before the pandemic, and preliminary information suggests that this trend has increased during 2020. The extent to which these increases uh, taken uh, or measures taken to curb uh, COVID-19 infections have infected child suicides is yet to be determined so we were told we we're all in this together repeatedly we've been told that over and over again but there's been unequal distribution of an accessibility to vaccines dozens of african nations have vaccination rates lower than one percent in your opinion when it comes to the pandemic are we pulling together or are we tearing apart and has the uh, response to the pandemic been a sign that we can pull together on climate change or not? Well, I would say that like climate change and the pandemic have something in common. They're both about a crisis of meaning. Um, I think we can pull together. I think it is a choice. Um, Some of us are choosing not to, are choosing to um, let it divide us more. And some of us are, I think some people took the pandemic as an opportunity to really you know, get get a little more real with their own lives and make some different choices. And and that was really heartening. Um, you know, it's discouraging this that other folks um, have chosen a different story. And it's in, incredibly uh, disheartening how vulnerable nations and vulnerable people have been left behind in in with the pandemic. And I and I hope my um, hope would be that we um, of course, learn that lesson and and do a better job going forward um, regarding the climate crisis. Christina, thank you so much for being on our show. I just want to repeat this to all of everybody who's listening right now. This is a stunningly beautiful book as well as fascinating. Please check out Christina Conklin's book that she co-wrote with Marina Saros, The Atlas of Disappearing Places, Our Coasts and Oceans in the Climate Crisis. Follow Christina on Twitter at Christy Conklin. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. If you enjoyed our conversation we just had with Christina Conklin on the impact of climate change on our coasts and oceans, 
please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all of our merchandise or by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday with a new monologue for me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jess, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is what are we going to be talking about on this show on our 50th anniversary in 2046? I'll be dead, so that's something <laughs> <No>. to consider. <laughs> um, Dan K says how to get coffee stains out of your gills. Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, <laughs> there's a bunch of good ones today. Cool. Bradley R. The ongoing negotiations between the delegates of the world's major workers' councils over how best to distribute food surpluses. Just kidding. Probably something about racism in the CIA. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Max G, God Emperor of Dune, Jeff Dorchin. <laughs> what will we be talking about in 2046? Mining the still sentient, uploaded consciousness of billions of poor people who sold their synaptic activity to get out of social birth debt is threatening a credit bubble. Interview with Baron Trump. <laughs> I'm glad he set up the interview, too. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> Sean M. The U.S. has declared that it, will be, uh, that it will pull out its last contracted Tesla drone bombers out of Afghanistan by the, by the end of next year. Will Elon Musk return to Earth to fight the decision? <laughs> uh, Justin H., Insect recipes and best urine recycling practices. <laughs> and the last one for today, Jeff C. How to get the electrical grid up and working. <laughs> Again, the question from hell is, what are we going to be talking about on This Is Hell on our 50th anniversary in 2046? What are we going to be talking about on This Is Hell on our 50th anniversary in 2046? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want that is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. As we do each week following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth, it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, Sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history, on July 28, 1915, 106 years ago this Wednesday, the white supremacist President Woodrow Wilson ordered the U.S. Marines to invade and occupy the Caribbean island nation of Haiti. Since winning its independence in 1804 in the world's only successful slave rebellion, the former French colony had staggered under a heavy burden of debt enforced by its former colonial masters under threat of naval blockade. Makes sense. The United States, from its very beginning, not only supported slavery domestically, but also supported globally, despite the rest of the world slowly turning away from slavery. Meanwhile, German and U.S. investors had moved into Haiti to take advantage of the economic vulnerability that Haiti's debt had created. U.S. companies had taken over Haitian finances, ports, and businesses, and in 1910, an American firm had acquired Haiti's National Railroad and begun forcing local farmers off their land to establish large U.S.-owned banana plantations. Again, sounds about rights, and the slaves rise up and win their independence, and the West figures out a way to exploit them, and throw them off their land. This led to several years of often violent political unrest, culminating in the murder of Jean Vilbrun Guillaume Sam, 
Haiti's fifth president in as many years, who was in office only a few months before being beaten to death by a crowd angered by his cooperation with U.S. commercial interests and by his order to execute more than 160 political prisoners. Fearing a takeover of Haiti by the rebel movement, it had happened before, Wilson responded by ordering the U.S. invasion. Within a few weeks, U.S. Marines imposed Martial law installed a new U.S.-backed Haitian president, silenced the local opposition, and took over all important aspects of the Haitian economy. The U.S. occupation would last 19 years and would help establish a climate for the brutal dictatorship of Francois Papadoc Duvalier a few decades later. But, please, do not men- mention, do not even suggest any of this history when the, covering the current situation in Haiti. The last thing the public needs is the historical context of the U.S. opposing Haiti's slave uprising, then exploiting the Haitian people, and when they rose up again, invading and occupying Haiti, and since that occupation ended, continuing the exploitation of the Haitian people, repeatedly driving them off their land. That's the kind of context that may make the public realize the brutality of the United States has aimed at the Haitian people for over 200 years and may lead back here to the United States and wonder why, you know, the U.S. is in Haiti at all. Maybe every back here will finally start reconsidering the U.S. continued occupation that goes on to this day. Who needs to worry about critical race theory when we're just not even telling people what the history is of the United States military occupations? That's rotten history. And this is Hell Jess, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Our guest tomorrow is Jocelyn Zuckerman on her new book, Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. We also get a new we also got sorry, we also got a new print from Kennedy Prince in Detroit that we will be sharing. And a recent get guest who was fully vaccinated got coronavirus, and we'll tell you who that guest is what they're now saying about being vaccinated. Jess, who's going to be on Wednesday's show? We both Wednesday and Thursday. Um, on Wednesday, I'm um, speaking with Jorge Majfoud on his op-ed, Cuba and the U.S., the difference between dictatorship and tyranny for common dreams. And then Thursday? And Thursday, um, Avi Gerilek will be joining us to discuss his hypocrite reader article, The Violence is the Point. So we started this week with climate change and rising shorelines. Then tomorrow it's going to be palm oil and how it's destroying everything. Then we're going to get on to redefining and reconsidering dictatorship and tyranny in U.S.-Cuban relations. Then we're ending up the week with talking about an article called The Violence is the Point. That's another great week in hell, isn't it? Of course, a moment of truth also with Jeff Dorch. And before we go, we got an email at chuckatthishell.com from Nick who writes, My name is Nick. I am a 23-year-old leftist. I'm still in school, and I just recently started looking for jobs after I stopped working as a private nanny. I was thinking to myself, what job will not make me want to kill myself? Mostly joking. I thought about your show and how I would love to be involved in some way. I figured it could never happen if I did not ask. So to cut to the chase, I was wondering if I could work for you in any way, either as an intern or something else. I'm willing to learn whatever I need. I'm extremely passionate about the work you do and things you cover. I hope this email finds you well, and thanks for taking the time to read this. We actually met before at the Michael Brooks Live Show in Chicago, where you appeared on stage with Michael. Here's a pic with yourself and some other fans and myself. Cheers in solidarity and love, Nick. 
And I do remember Nick uh, meeting Nick, so it was great to see that picture of you. I totally remember that event. So we're trying to figure out when we can meet and talk with Nick about being part of the show. However, Nick, I got to tell you, at times this show does make me want to end it all, so don't put that on us. Remember, the show is called This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to Jess for producing. Thanks to Christina Conklin, our guest. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking Christina on today's show. Thanks to Ronaldo for rotten history, Ronaldo Magaldi. And this week's hangover cure is make your own damn isotonic carbohydrate electrolyte sports drink. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>